welcome to the GoTo Podcast. Each episode covers the brightest and boldest ideas from the world's leading experts in software development. Tune in for practical lessons, compelling theories, and plenty of inspiration. GoTo gathers the brightest minds in the software community to help developers tackle projects today, plan for tomorrow, and create a better future. Stay up to date with the latest in tech through GoTo's top-rated events held online and in person in cities like Amsterdam, London, Copenhagen, and Chicago, and by subscribing to the GoTo Conference's YouTube channel, where you can find thousands more high-quality dev talks. Learn more at gotopia.tech. Hi, I'm Hannes. I'm here today with Michelle Hansen. Um, and we're here to talk about deploying empathy. So, Michelle, can you please introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, uh, I'm Michelle Hansen. I am co-founder of Geopodio, which is a SaaS, and I am also the author of Deploy Empathy, which is a practical guide to interviewing customers. So, Michelle, can you tell me how you ended up at, um, at your current position at the company? Well, my husband and I started our company as a side project in 2014. We do geocoding, so that's converting addresses into coordinates so that a computer can understand them, and addresses or coordinates into addresses so that a human can understand them. Right. And we started that in 2014. Um, I was working um, as a product manager at the time, um, grew the company, and I eventually went full-time on the company in 2017. When I was a product manager, uh, one of my focuses was on new product development and um, customer research. And I found learning how to do customer research to be relevatory for me as a product manager. Um, with our team, it increased team velocity so much, we felt like we had a really clear vision once we started incorporating customers into our process. And so when I uh, went full-time as an entrepreneur, um, Got a chance to do a lot more of that with my own customers, but also started investing and mentoring in other companies as well. Um, and sort of learned that there was a need for uh, more books that spoke to people about how to talk to their customers, how to solve problems like churn, customer acquisition, um, retention, uh, figuring out what's built in the first place, all of those things that took the rigor of the UX world um, but put it in a way that made it approachable for anyone, especially developers, to start deploying empathy in their work. Right. You mentioned like figuring out what to build. It's one of the things that I tell uh, junior developers all the time. I coach a lot of junior developers. And I, the first thing that I tell them is like f hold off on the coding, figure out what you're building first and why you're building it, you will save so much time because you'll end up redoing a lot less of your work. Does that sound familiar to you? Yes. Before you deploy code, deploy empathy. Figure out <laughs> what you're building, why, who is it for, how are they going to use that because that determines the big picture, um, but also a lot of little decisions you might make on a daily basis as a software developer, whether that's how you're structuring an API or a database schema, that determines how um, the information can be packaged up to the user and consumed by them. And without understanding 
what the user's goals are and what they're trying to do in the first place, you can't really build something that makes that easier for them. Um, yeah. You can also not think along to their process if you don't understand how they make their money or what kind of process the thing that you're building is actually going to fit into. Um, and I think that that's probably what makes senior developers senior developers is they look a little bit further than just the code that they're writing and actually try to solve the real problem. Um, you are wearing a t-shirt with a duck. Does that have anything to do? Um, because we have rubber duck debugging when we're writing code. Is, is it something similar that well, you brought in a, a, a rubber ducky? Yes, so the rubber duck, um, which you find on my t-shirt and on the cover of my book, um, is inspired by that famous story in The Pragmatic Programmer. Right. Um, this idea that if you have a problem, you should talk it out to the duck. And I take a little spin on it, which is that when you are interviewing a customer, whether that is in a formal sit-down exploratory conversation or a usability session where they're trying, you're trying to figure out whether they can use the thing that you've built, the idea is to picture yourself as the rubber duck. Right. Because in a well-run interview, the person you're interviewing is doing 90% of the talking. You have some questions that you want to ask them, but mostly you're just encouraging them to keep talking um, about their process, about their goals, so you can figure out where your product fits mm -hmm. in their overall process. And so it's a helpful mental image to picture when you might find yourself wanting to jump in on what someone is saying or get excited and um, instead to sort of calm down and be like, nope, I am the rubber duck here. They, they are the one who is talking and I am right. absorbing. Like holding off on proposing solutions as long as you can, right? Yes, ideally <laughs> not proposing them at all when you okay. are talking to the customer. Yeah. So what like, are the, the key um, do's and don'ts when you're having such conversations? Because I, I feel that it, it's very hard to get good at doing that. Yes, it's so important. It's important to the point where I spent an entire part of my book talking about how to talk so people will talk. Because the way you ask questions and the way you treat someone in an interview determines the quality and quantity of information that you get back. You know, sometimes I hear from people who say that they tried customer interviews and they didn't get anything out of it. But then it turns out that they weren't well prepared enough in terms of how you ask a question, right? Because there is a big difference between why'd you sign up for our product today? And why'd you sign up for our product today? It was because your boss told you to or you were looking for something. And why'd you sign up for our product today? There's a right. huge difference between those. And if you want someone to open up to you and tell you about their process, even if it's a very boring everyday business process, those are sometimes the best ones because people haven't really talked them through with anyone else. Um, the way you ask the questions and the way you treat someone makes a huge difference. And it's almost that your questions that you might have come in with, they're just setting up the interview and showing the other person that you care about this process or goal that they mm -hmm. have, um, that you're listening to them, um, and that fundamentally they have the floor and you are just there to listen to them. So things like using a calm, gentle tone of voice, not interrupting them, um, leaving pauses for them to fill, um, and mirroring and summarizing what they're saying 
Um, all of those things are incredibly important to building rapport with the person so that you get really good information back that you can then use to build better products um, and more successful products. Right. So if you, if you talk about getting, um, like summarizing information back to, um, to the user, is it also a key point to, to find the nuance in, in the terms that they're using to describe their processes? It's something that's really big in the, in the DDD world when we're looking at uh, finding the ubiquitous language that is being used in that business, the, the terms and the, and the domain terms that apply, and a customer is something else than a, than a person and a, and, and, and a subscriber. They're, they might all mean different things in a certain context. Is that the is that something you you try to also achieve in those interviews, like finding that nuance? Yeah, it's really important to make sure that you understand what the user is saying in their context. So you might understand what DDD is, but you might not understand what it is in their specific context yeah. and how it works within their organization. Right. The goal is for them to teach you about their experience, yeah. not necessarily the subject matter, right? right? And so I might rephrase that back to you and say, so you're telling me that's important um, in DDD. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, one of the things that I was go was like, you use the term uh, customer now, but you were using the term subscriber uh, a little bit before. Like, what's the difference? Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean the same thing. Or that those kinds of questions are the, the things that I go looking for when I'm talking with a customer is that, to understand what they're talking about. If they use different words, they usually mean a different thing, but I don't know what the difference is because I'm an outsider getting in, right? Mm -hmm. This is a tactic I call asking for clarification even when you don't need it, right? So if you ask for clarification about something you already understand, chances are you will learn something about how it works within Mm -hmm. their specific organization, which could be incredibly key for selling something into their organization, right? You need to understand how the process looks. Every organization is different. Everybody implements Agile differently, right? And so you need to understand how it works in their specific context. Um, And there's also a little level up there too where you can rephrase and ask for clarification slightly wrong. So you might misstate the steps of a process, for example. And then I find- You do that on purpose? Yeah, yeah. So for example, if someone is telling you about how they want to onboard a new vendor, let's say, and they say, so first I go to my manager to get approval, then I go to purchasing to get a PO, Mm -hmm. and then I send it back to the vendor, for example. You might say, let me make sure I have this straight. First, uh, you go to purchasing to get the PO, and then you talk to your manager, and then you send the PO back to the vendor. Mm. It's very slightly wrong, but it will prompt someone to say, no, 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 I have to go talk to my manager first, because if I, can't, I don't talk to him first, then I, I can't go get to purchasing, and then it's gonna be this huge mess, and I did this once, and it was like, they're just gonna go off, right? And they won't even remember that you had it slightly wrong, you will get so much detail. It's just, it's amazing. You'll get the why. Oh, it's like, why yes. do you do it in this exactly. order? Exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> That's nice. You also mentioned that it could be a very boring business process, mm-hmm. right? Have you ever like consulted with a business that was legitimately boring even after you found, all the, found out all the details about it? So I don't do consulting myself, okay. but our company, uh, we are a truly horizontal SaaS. Right. Our customers range from 
college students who are making a map for the first time and using Geocodia because mm -hmm. their professor told them to, to Fortune 50 companies, banks, insurance companies, government, massive um, organizations. And I, something I love about interviewing customers is that it's so much fun to get a window into all of these organizations. And it's just, it's, it's just really interesting. I don't think I have ever found um, a use case that um, I found boring. Um, I think maybe just as, as, as an investor's perspective, perhaps I just find it so, so fascinating to get to peel back all of the little layers of what they're trying to do. And, you know, I think with, with geocoding, for example, it's abundantly clear that somebody has to do something else with it, right? Yeah. Like, coordinates are not stamps. People don't collect them for the fun of it, right? They are not an end result in and of right. themselves. It's very clear that we are a step in some larger process. And so I find it so much fun to talk to people, whether their use case is regulatory compliance or they make software for tractors and they need to make sure that the health reports they're getting back from each tractor are correctly timestamped so that the one at 11.59 in Delaware is timestamped on the right day and not the one at 11.59 in California, right? And so it just runs the gamut and it makes it so fun and inspiring to work on the business too. Yeah, it's, it's what I always loved about, um, I'm a software development consultant, so I'll, I'll go in and, and help them write software. I found that step of the process, like finding out how they make their money um, and why they're doing the things that they're doing and a lot of these domains may seem boring from the outside, but as soon as you start learning what makes that whole company tick, it might be a company that writes software to do customs declarations, or it might be a very fancy IoT company, but as soon as you get into the little levels of detail, it almost always becomes interesting at some point because you're dealing with these situations and fine-tuning their business with the products that you're building which is always great, great to do. And it makes you a little bit invested in what they're trying to do, right? Because maybe on the surface, okay, customs, that's a little bit boring. But then you actually start talking to them, it's, oh my gosh, they've come so far. They've upgraded all of their IT in the past 10 years. This is part of a big effort they're doing. This is real people who are trying to do things. And then so when you go back to your own team, you have that in your head of, okay, yes, I have thousands of customers who are going to use this, but in my head I can picture, okay, this is how that customs company is going to use, and I remember the steps of the process. And so if I make this decision, this will make that a lot easier for them. And then in turn, thousands of other companies that also are going through that same activity. Yes. So, geo coordinates. You've got, you've got my interest there. Um, it seems like there should already be solutions for that out there. What, what is your product able to do that makes it unique? Yeah, so our niche is in the North American market, and where we focus is where people need coordinates for um, data enrichment purposes. So, for example, many of our customers are making maps, which is sort of the most obvious mm -hmm. use case for coordinates. Um, but a lot of them are using them for other things where basically the coordinates are a doorway to other pieces of information about a location. So for example, if you wanna know some, who somebody's congressperson is, you actually need to take their address and put it in the coordinates first. If you wanna know somebody's time zone, if you wanna know any sort of um, 
census or statistical data about a location. First, you have to have the coordinates. Um, there are all sorts of things um, in the U.S., in Canada, all over the world where you can only get these pieces of information um, about a location if you have the coordinates. And it really runs the gamut from political data to uh, things that lead to insurance or environmental risks. Um, it's right. really, really fun. And users will not input their coordinates. They're going to put input their street address, right? So it can be coordinates um, or the address. Um, and um, as we're focused on the sort of data enrichment practices, um, it's usually people uploading spreadsheets of thousands to millions of addresses using an API that's either real time in their application or you know maybe they've got a database of hundreds of millions of addresses that they need to find one specific census point for regulatory purposes, for example. That sounds cool. Yeah, it is cool. It's also a domain that if you dive into it a little bit deeper, it, it will become interesting. What are interesting? Like, what are the the biggest problems that you faced when you were building that? Well, building all of those data pipelines is really tricky. I think that's something where we focus on is that we know that for our customers in their process, if they're using anybody else, they're gonna they might need to hit five different APIs. They're coming back with different terms, different pricing, different formats, and just normalizing all of that data takes a lot of time and is pretty frustrating for them. Um, and so we instead try to consume as much of all of those base data sets on our end. And so having all of those data pipelines getting the data, updating it continuously. Um, those are challenges that we are working on on a daily basis to make sure that things are as easy as possible so that we are the ones who are dealing with sorting and normalizing and updating all of that. So when it comes to them, they can just click a box or add an additional field in the API and get it and never have to worry about all of that data stuff. That's nice. And that company is based here in Denmark. Yes, we start, well, we started it in the U.S. and we, my husband and I, who are uh, my other uh, founder, we moved to Denmark two years ago. But we still have a U.S. company. We joke that the, we're the world's smallest multinational corporation. The world's smallest multinational. <laughs> okay, that, that's well. It's it's a statement that's technically correct, which is the best kind of correct. Um, moving to Denmark in 2020. That sounds like it must have been fun or frustrating or both. Yeah, we feel very fortunate that we were able to move to Denmark in 2020. We have a daughter and um, schools were closed in the U.S. and uh, looked indefinitely closed. Um, and we had been planning to come to Denmark uh, for the summer anyway, where my husband is originally from. And we're like, you know what? Why don't we just stay here for a year? Um, but after a couple of months, we really loved it and decided to move here. So we moved from five minutes outside of Washington, D.C. to a six-acre farm uh, in the Danish countryside. Oh, Danish countryside? Like near yeah. which city? Fodingpol. Okay, that's nice. Um, let's get back to talking to um, business people. What are the first kind of things you start looking for if you know nothing about their business? So if I am talking to one of my customers or I'm talking like, to somebody who wants to talk to their customers? Yeah, no. What, what do you teach people? Like the first, I, I get into a new business. What's the type of questions that I should be asking them even if I, if I know nothing except for like the basic information I find on their website? 
Yeah, I think um, the, the first question to ask is, what are they trying to get done, right? You know, if we're going to apply jobs to be done and research to their customers, mm-hmm. first, let's apply jobs to be done to this company. Why do they? Why have they reached out for help in the first place? Mm-hmm. It, and that might be hiring a consultant or simply reading a book. What is the problem they're trying to solve? Where are they in that process? Um, what have they already tried? These are the questions that we ask of users, but first we ask it of the company um, mm-hmm. to figure out where they are. What, what are they trying to do? What, what, what have they already tried? Why isn't it working, right? Where mm-hmm. are they struggling? Um, and then from there figuring out, okay, so if we know what their goal is, maybe that's um, the primary thing that they're struggling with is that whether it's new customers or retaining existing customers, um, you know, having cancellation issues, figuring out which ideas they should be prioritizing. Um, I have scripts for six different common situations in my book to make it hopefully easy for people to just take that, make some modifications that are relevant to their business and their customers, and then just run with it. Um, so they don't have to go through the process too much of workshopping um, scripts. Huh. And then hopefully they can start out, go find five people to talk to, um, People across the UX world generally say that just start with five um, and then see what you've learned. You'll probably find some threads that are really interesting there, probably learn some things you didn't even realize were there, which is always the fun part about doing interviews. And then you can continue to explore as you see necessary, going in the directions that look like, you know, are a good nexus of what might be profitable for the business and you're capable of solving, but are also high-frequency, high-paying problems for customers that they are already willing to pay for. Right. So you mentioned five people. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that when you do these conversations, you'll, you'll either see people um, either contradict each other or confirm each other's stories. How do you deal with that? Yeah, so the... The general rule that you will hear people say, and this includes Nielsen Norman Group, um, Jim Callback, author of the Jobs Be Done Playbook, a whole bunch of other people, is start with five and then stop when you keep hearing the same things over and over again. And so you may hear um, the same things from you know, four people in a five-person set, which probably means you have a very defined scope mm-hmm. and you already really understood that problem quite well because you targeted your interviews very well. Um, but for a larger, more nebulous problem, you may need to keep doing research loops of five people to figure um, that out a bit more and narrow things down further. That's very normal. Okay. Um, so are you... L- on purpose looking for the contradictions or to confirm certain stories? Do you carry your findings from the first conversation that you have into the second and the third and so on? Or do you treat them as completely different, uh, separate conversations? I encourage people to evaluate their ideas rather than to validate them. Right. So when you go into something, you might have a hypothesis about a behavior. Mm -hmm. We might say, okay, we've looked at our data. We can see that these users who take these actions, they end up being the ones who retain, for example. Mm -hmm. And you might have a theory as to why. Usually I found those theories end up being wrong, and it's kind of fun um, to be wrong in those scenarios. Um, And it's important to keep an open mind 
when you go into that, um, be prepared to be wrong. Even be excited about the prospect um, <laughs> of, of being, being wrong. wrong. Yes, <laughs> and of learning something new. Um, you'll know that your time has been well spent doing research if it turns out your original hypotheses were wrong. That's interesting. Being wrong, it goes. It's it's often a sentiment that that triggers some kind of primal response in us humans, right? It's like, I said this thing before, but now it turns out that I'm wrong. Our nature tells us to fight that. Um, how do you deal with that? Well, first, I think when, whenever you find any emotion that is challenging you, whether that's mm -hmm. you're afraid of talking to people or you're afraid of being wrong, the first thing is to recognize that that feeling is valid. Um, I think the most important part of being able to deploy empathy with our customers mm -hmm. is actually deploying that empathy on ourselves first and saying, it's okay that I'm afraid to talk to people. It's okay that I'm afraid I won't get anything out of this. It's okay that I'm afraid of being wrong and having to explain to people why I was wrong about this. Recognizing that first is incredibly important because if you try to push that away, the feeling will only grow stronger, right? If you tell yourself not to worry about something, what are you gonna do? You're gonna worry about it. Exactly, yes. <laughs> right? And then so if you can build a culture where it's okay to be wrong, you know, I think back to the team that I was on before um, I was a full-time entrepreneur, it got to that point where it was acceptable and even encouraged to be wrong. And people were excited about it and that made it such a great team environment to be on because we were all learning so much and you didn't have to feel like you were right all the time. It really reduced a lot of pressure and allowed us to try new ideas to push things forward. Search for the truth together kind of thing. And it's okay that what we taught previously now turns out to be completely invalid. Yes, and I think you see this you know, in broader um, leadership advice now too. Brene Brown, for example, is famous um, for talking about the power of vulnerability in leadership. Mm -hmm. And this is a very concrete way that team leaders can do that, is make it okay for their employees to do things wrong. Whether that is they wrote code that, that had a bunch of errors and failed the tests that's okay, you've learned something, let's, ex let's be excited about that, right? Especially for someone who's a junior developer and may not feel as confident in their coding abilities. But also people who are doing product side research, make it okay for their initial assumptions about user behavior to be wrong and encourage them to go out and find those answers and continually finding those answers and always learning new things. So is, is this step of the process where the title of the book comes from, Deploying em uh, Deploy Empathy? Yeah, the title is a bit of a wink to developers. Initially, the audience I was writing to was um, developers who had become founders, either because they had side projects or they started their own software companies. Um, very often, very small shops where maybe they're the person who was doing everything or they only have a handful of employees. And I wanted to make sure that developers knew that this was a book for them because a right. lot of UX and product books are written for UX and product people. And instead, I wanted to make sure that they knew that they were included in this. And this was a book that they would be able to get something out of, um, even if they had no prior experience with customer research. Yeah, that's a daunting situation. As soon as you start uh, entrepreneurship, um, you're, first you're just chief everything officer and then you have to figure all, all the things out, like from bookkeeping to 
doing customer research to actually building the thing. Has that also been your experience in, in your business? Um, because you said you're the world's smallest multinational <laughs> company. Um, that leads me to believe that you're still a very small outfit. Um, are you taking on all of the roles in the company? Yeah, my husband and I do have a division of labor. We have some areas where we share things, right. um, but some areas that are pretty much exclusively mine and some areas that are pretty much exclusively his. Right, and you still run the whole shop, the two of you, or are there employees involved already? We're actually hiring our first uh, employee right now. He'll be starting in July, um, but we've had a lot of consultants and freelancers um, over the years as well. Sounds exciting. Is yeah. it going to be here in Denmark, an employee here in Denmark? or No, in the U.S. In the U.S. Okay, so it's going to be a fully remote job. Yes. Yeah, very pandemic-y, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we are uh, exporting a little bit of Denmark to it, though. Uh, in Denmark, we have this concept of vacation money, where right. people get an extra payment in uh, the spring. In June or July. It, exactly, yeah. to yeah. go on a vacation that summer. And so we decided to give them a minimum amount of pure vacation that we expected to take and then split up their annual bonus. So half of it is in the summer and half of it at the end of the year. So they have that um, vacation money. Um, to Sounds on. awesome. So yeah, I um, really hope that you succeed um, with your new employee and that they appreciate the European way of doing things. We have the same thing in Belgium. We do get a bonus uh, just before the summer and one at Christmas. Is there anything else that you would like to add to this conversation, um, getting to the end of it? Or do you think you shared everything with the audience that you wanted to tell? So um, people can check out the book by going to deployempathy.com. There you can find a preview of the book. Um, you can also find links to buy it. You can buy it from Amazon or Saxo or um, wherever you buy your books. Right, so find it on Amazon, Deploy Empathy by Michelle Hansen. Thank you so much for being here with me today and for having this conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the GoTo Podcast. Head over to gotopia.tech to discover lots more content from the brightest minds in software development.